0: You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: High flag ball, deep center, going back
2: judge, still back on the track at the wall.
1: to the ballpark dimensions podcast with me mandy bell guardians beat reporter for mlb.com and sarah lang's researcher and reporter for mlb.com as well sarah we i know last week was what the golden age of home run sellies that we talked about um we're gonna have more we're gonna get some more um but i think like out of everything that happened this past week if you check MLB.com. If you're watching MLB Network, if you're around MLB at all, you've seen Judge versus Otani, and I don't. I don't know how I was like. I get in my own little world because of where, where I'm working in Cleveland and focusing on that. I went on MLB.com right before the Yankees- Angels series started, and I was looking through all the headlines just to see, and then there was a whole section of the homepage dedicated to. Judge versus Otani, not Yankees versus Angels. It's Judge versus Otani, and I went, oh my gosh, how how am I in this like deep hole of not knowing anything that's going on? I didn't even realize that this was happening this week, and of course, then I started reading everything of like Judge's longest homers, Otani's longest homers, and I was like, this is, this is gonna be fun, and you know, MLB's gonna want things to happen. I'm sure they weren't expecting for Judge to rob Otani of a homer or whatever it might have been, but uh, I think everyone's gotten everything that they could have wanted out of this series.
2: Oh, my gosh. I mean, first of all, Otani homer in in Game 1 on Tuesday, 116.7 miles an hour off the bat. (laughs) He has the third most 116-plus-mile-an-hour homers, Tracked by StatCast, the only guys ahead of him, of course, are Stanton, of course, currently on the IL, but on the Yankees and Judge. So already we're off to that great start. And then, as you mentioned on Wednesday, not only does Judge rob Ohtani of a home run in the first inning, then he comes and hits the ball almost the exact same metrics as what Ohtani had hit and his goes out. There he goes, high
1: drive, deep left center, there it goes, see ya!
2: They're both like 111.4, 111.7 off the bat, very similar launch angles, almost the exact same projected distance, but one was hit to a guy who was 500 feet tall playing center field who was able to catch whatever comes his way and the other wasn't. But I mean, just an amazing series, you you. You mentioned all of that content on the homepage that we had at MLB.com, MLB Network, of course, typing it. They have one of the games as a showcase game. What's amazing to me is that we're talking about Judge and Otani, you know, I was part of a round table who is the biggest attraction in baseball, which was like another variation on the MVP debate. How about the fact that Shohei Otani continues to make it so that the future Hall of Famer, who if he retired yesterday, would be in the Hall of Fame five years later, in Mike Trout isn't even in this conversation. I mean, it's incredible. And obviously, we know Mike Trout. We know his personality type. I continue to think that Otani joining the Angels is his favorite thing to happen, not only because he got a stellar teammate, but because all of the attention goes to Otani. And Mike Trout gets to just be Mike Trout the way he is. But it is incredible to me that the Angels-Yankees series we're not even saying Trout and Otani versus Judge. We we're just talking about Otani and Judge. And of course, I brought up Trout and we all did in that round table. But it really tells you the level that Otani is on in terms of notoriety, that that is what the conversation is.
1: I didn't even, the fact that we've gotten this far into it is like, it's displayed by the fact that I didn't even really think about Trout at all whenever I saw that stuff. I was just thinking like, oh yeah, Tawny versus Judge, this is crazy, this will be fun. Until you just said it now, I didn't even think about Trout being in this equation of like how crazy it is. is it for the biggest stars to be playing each other. And Mike Trout, like, it seems like a blink of an eye ago was the face of the game. And... He is still one of the biggest faces of the game, but it's really hard to top what Otani is able to do. And I don't know if anyone will ever be able to top what he's able to do. But uh, yeah, I didn't really think about that. And I, I mean, I was even when I was reading through the roundtable that you guys did. I read it as, of course, Sarah would be the person who would pick someone and then say not to disrespect the other person, because everyone else is like, uh, obviously, it's this person, end of story. And Sarah's like, it's this person, and I don't want to be mean to the other people, but, and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, that checks out. But I even read it as not to disrespect Judge. I didn't even notice in your story that you also said Judge or Trout, because my brain is so fixated on these two faces. And so... That's why it'll be interesting this year i mean if the angels are the angels that we've seen of the past few years what happens to otani this year does he get traded my gosh this trade deadline would be crazy if that's ha- if that's what happens does he get traded and move to another team and steal every spotlight possible of what Soto was last trade the deadline that'll look like minuscule compared to what this would be um And how does this just pan out? Like, this is the biggest name that we could have ever imagined we could ever watch. Like, everything he does, every time he steps on the field, you're just waiting for history. You're waiting for something that you've never seen before. And there's a lot of good players. There's a lot of guys that you think, oh, they could have a really good game today. But he just is another level of what record is he going to set? What is he going to throw 105 somehow? And like just break the radar gun and then step up and hit a grand slam the next inning. Like I I don't I don't know how to physically comprehend what he's able to do. So I think this year is going to be fun, and I think the attention that this series got is just like a preview of what we're gonna have for Otani this the rest of this year of what could happen this off season. Obviously, if he doesn't get traded, will be insane, and then wherever he ends up with what team next year, all eyes will be on him again. So. This is gonna be Otani constant.
2: And I know this is a series that happens every year no matter what. Obviously, they're both in the American League and the way the schedule's been constructed for a very long time. They would have been coming here no matter what. But I do think the attention this is getting is also a really good example of what's so amazing about the balance schedule. Because it's not just that the American League teams get to say, oh my goodness, the American League cities, oh my gosh, we get to see Shohei Otani. How about the fact that every other year, no matter what team he goes to in the off season, if he stays with the Angels, Every other year, he will go to Chicago twice and New York twice with those teams. Every other year, you know, if he ends up in the National League. Every other year, he'll be in Cleveland. What happy! I mean, I think seeing how much one individual series can really turn the tide in the way that just turn the tide of how a city is excited about baseball. It's a really, really cool thing to see. Yep,
1: and as we sort of mentioned about what records are set and things like that, I think that's an easy transition into what we want to talk to talk about next because Clayton Kershaw, I mean, it's he had a lot of headlines himself this past weekend, um, hitting 200 wins, and what he was able to do, uh, what he's been able to do for his entire career has been ridiculous and he had did he have nine strikeouts in his 200th win I mean does it get more like poetic than that of just being utterly dominant it's not like this oh well he he went six gave up three he was fine it was whatever he had like three strikeouts a walk or two but they eked out the win and he got his uh, 200th win. Now he's going up there. He's having nine strikeouts. It's just that's, that's what big time players do in big time moments. And it was cool that his milestone was as dominant as it was.
2: I mean, it was a vintage thing, Kershaw seven innings, scoreless, three hits, no walks, and those nine strikeouts, as you mentioned. And I remember I looked up, I mean, I was watching the game and I look up and the seventh inning was two outs and he was at 88 pitches. And I'm like, oh my gosh, could he go with the whole game? I mean, we're looking at a complete game, maybe even a shutout. And two guys ended up reaching. <laughs> and he gets out of it because if there's any pitcher you're going to trust as he gets into the 100 102 but he's been lights out all night and you're Dave Roberts it's Clayton Kershaw you'll give him that leash he gets out of it and lets out another vintage Kershaw celebration a scream and kind of like a grimace but a good grimace at the camera I don't even know how to explain it but if you've watched Clayton Kershaw you know what I mean and it was just so perfect and you know we've talked about it at various points obviously I am not the world's biggest proponent of pitcher wins I think there are better ways to measure a pitcher and his impact but I am not the stats person who will say, oh, this is useless. I mean, pitcher wins matter because they matter to pitchers. And Kershaw said after the game, how he cared about this stat because it's a team stat, because that is 200 times he was handed the ball and at the very least his team won the game. We can all get behind that line of thinking and I love hearing that. It's funny because the main reason stats people look down on pitcher wins is that they're individual. But I love that he painted it as a team sound. And of course it is. I mean, the number one thing we know is the team won the game. So even to those who might have not expected me to be hyping 200 wins, I absolutely will because you know what? 200 wins means that there were a lot more than 200 times that Clayton Kershaw has gone out there and given his team a chance to win. Those are just the 200 that went perfectly well. He departed with the lead and all of that. But I do want to say a couple stats because, I mean, Kershaw stats are so much fun. You know, when I was at ESPN in 20. I don't remember if this was in 15 or 16, but obviously Pete Kershaw, one of my uh, coworkers, one of the other researchers on Baseball Night, put together this segment where he gave like, Carl Ravitch a list of insane clean Kershaw stats that didn't even seem real. and I assume it was Carl would we'll go on there and read them you would just watch Dallas Braden's face, and he's a very expressive man, as he reacted like that can't be real. And basically the goal of the segment was how hard can you get someone to laugh at the absurdity of how good he is. So these are not on that level, but I was sitting here, and I felt like my former colleague because Kershaw comes out, and okay, my first thought is, scoreless starts of seven innings Dodgers history. He's got to be towards the top. Okay, 61, that's too shy of Don Sutton. And 63, for most by a Dodger since 1900. And then I get kind of giddy, and I'm like, okay. But he only allowed three hits. So what if we say seven innings and three hits or fewer? We go outside of Dodger history, just overall, 65 starts, seven innings, three or fewer hits. The only guys with more since 1900, as, uh, as some people would say, they're guys you can refer to probably by one name, Nolan Ryan, 134. Roger Clemens, 80, Randy Johnson, 78, and Tom Siever was 66. And then I'm like, okay, okay, I don't wanna to have too many qualifiers here, but what if we say seven innings, three or fewer hits, and no walks? Because not walking anyone when you throw seven innings, especially in this day and age, very, very impressive. So, if you go with that, it's Greg Maddox with 22, and then Kershaw with 15. He broke a tie at 14 with Grover Alexander, also known as Pete Alexander, who had 14. So, no matter where you go, we're talking about top five all time, among the greatest in franchise history. Of course, you know, Dodger franchise history on the pitching end is not necessarily evaluated by counting stats. The one thing Kershaw has, that Sandy Kopecks didn't in the same way as longevity. Sandy Kopecks was really, really good for a relatively short period of time, but he was incredible. Clayton Kershaw has been around forever, so He's passed Sandy Kovacs on some of these lists, which isn't meant to diminish Kovacs. And of course, there I go, kind of making those comments again. But I did want to point that uh, out as well. I mean,
1: those names are insane. And I know you, so... Like you explain as you're looking through this, how your brain works. But like, I don't think anyone understands how giddy you really get whenever you see things work out. I know how excited I get whenever I'm in the middle of a game and I'm sitting there like, you know what, I'm wondering about a stat. Let me see if Sarah can help me. And you send back and say, ooh, and I'm like, yes. That means like, this is gonna line up exactly what (laughs) I wanted to hear to help my story. Whatever it may be. So I know how giddy you would have gotten whenever you're reading through that list, especially Nolan Ryan, Roger Clemens, Randy Johnson, and Tom Seaver. That's insane, and especially for Kershaw. Like, I know players never want to be the person who is talking about these feats, especially when it's their own and not a team-based thing. And they sit there and say, yeah, uh, yes, it's cool, but okay, I just want to focus on today. I want to move on. I want to get into, like, let's win tomorrow. Let's do this. Let's focus on the task at hand. But you gotta think that he's got to sit at home and like see these types of names and milestones and all this stuff and allow it maybe to sink in just a little bit because that's really as cool as it gets. I think, well, we can take a quick break and then when we come back we have other dominant performances. The Rays are still the Rays even though they showed that they were collectively a human entity of finally losing. But they're still just as hot as ever, and then, of course, we'll keep the tradition going from last week and talk about Sarah's home run sellies that she is full in on. And uh, I, uh, I, think I I think I speak for everybody when I say the more we can get the baseballs, the best tweets, the better. So uh, much more when we come back. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast with me, Mandy Bell and Sarah Langs, as always. Uh, Sarah, I really am running out of ways to like talk about this team because yes, they lost. Okay, let's get that out of the way. They collectively, as I said before, are some form of human entity and lost. And I know a lot of fans, at least in my Twitter mentions from Cleveland, were very relieved that they lost and that Cleveland can still hold that 22 game win streak um fans were very very concerned I can promise you that in northeast Ohio that somehow that would be in jeopardy uh but a 16 and 3 record is is okay I think that's all right so at the time that we're recording this the Rays are 16 and 3 and Yandy Diaz has hit every home run possible and uh, it's another thing that Cleveland fans would like to be having right now and enjoying as well so Uh, What has it been like, I know I haven't been able to follow them as closely, but what has it been like to watch this team during the stretch, knowing how ridiculously hot they've gotten off to?
2: I mean, they've been so much fun to watch. So, as you mentioned, as Cleveland fans find out, yes, (laughs) yes, no more win streak to start the year. But... They do still have a home run streak. So they have home run in all nineteen games they have played this year. The record to start the season is twenty. But the twenty nineteen Mariners, of course, there were a lot of home runs back in 2019. So that is something to keep an eye on, as they head home for uh, their weekend series beginning Friday. Another thing about home, they still haven't lost at home. All three of their losses have been on the road, so they've won 10 straight at home. And I put together a list of the longest home winning streaks to start a season. And if they do win an eleven, they would be tied for the, doing some quick math in my head.
1: You're on the spot now
2: tied for the eighth longest home win streak to start the season if they won 11. So I'll read you the list because it's really fun. And By the next time we talk, it might be over. So the 1880 (laughs) White Stockings won 21 at home in a row to start the year. Get ready for this one, the 1886 Wolverines. What? Won eight. <laughs> they won 18 straight at home. The 1884 Maroons, who we're very familiar with at this point, 16. The 1885 White Stockings with 14. Then we have the 2009 Dodgers, who luckily we've all heard of, <laughs> at 13. 1911 Tigers at 12, and the 1884 Gothams at 12, and then the 2003 Royals and the 1883 Athletics at 11. And (laughs) I do want to point out, because people know they're the Athletics, the current Oakland Athletics, they used to be in Philadelphia. (laughs) this is a different athletics franchise that existed for like two years and this is why I love it. I baseball. was not expecting
1: like 95% of that list to be pre-1900 um so when you rattled off the first one I was like oh my gosh what and then you just kept saying all 1800 I'm thinking is this seriously this insane which that's a great list to prove like How rare. And then you jump to 2009, which sounded wrong after naming all of those other years. But, I mean, that's impressive. And it's like, okay, yes, it's not like it's a consecutive win streak. It's not going after um, what Cleveland fans would say is their golden win streak of 22 in a row. I, I, I understand that there would be some losses mixed in. But to have that at home, to keep that type of streak going, is insane especially when you think of how long it's been and two the home run thing is mind-boggling um especially for someone who covers the team that has the fewest in the majors but that's that's like that's something I think for me that's even more I don't want to say interesting or fun but it kind of is than just winning every single day because I I don't want to say that gets boring because it's ridiculously impressive, but the action in the game is what everyone gets drawn in by. And that's what you're doing. And so, okay, some of those games you may have lost, but the fact that you're still producing, you're not going out there and having that two hit shutout that you just got completely owned basically whenever you're taking the field and fans are like oh that was a rough one no there's always action they're always in it somehow they're always having ridiculously fun games and so I know it's a so so small of a sample size and in the grand scheme of things maybe this is just something that everyone looks back on and was like oh remember when they had that really hot stretch but then they fell off you don't know you have no idea how the rest of the year will play out but As long as we're in it, just take advantage of enjoying it because this is something that obviously we haven't seen in a long time.
2: And I need to call out, call out in a good way, a player who has been a SACS hero or a SACS darling forever. And everyone has said, everyone who looked at things like ground ball rates and what have you, looks at Yandy Diaz and says the same thing. You don't even have to know his hard hip rate. All you need to do is see his arms. And you know that he could be Giancarlo Stanton. But he hits the ball on the ground too much. And to that I say, this year, and yes, it's early. Right now, he has a 32% ground ball rate for uh you know context MLB average is around maybe 42 43 last year he had a 50 percent ground ball rate so now what you do is you look at how often he hits the ball hard right now it is 57 percent of the time and if you think about the fact that instead of half of those being on the ground only about a third of those are on the ground. All of a sudden, that's where the home runs come from, that's where doubles come from, and even just really good singles. He is making really, really good quality contact. And another way to look at this is, last year he had a 49% hard hit rate, which was in the top 9% of the league. But we've talked about barrels on this podcast. Those are batter balls with the ideal combination of both launch angle and exit velocity. So there is no question that yondi DDS has the exit velocity part of that down. No question. But the issue has been the launch angle. The issue has been hitting the ball into the ground. So for all of his hard hit rate last year, he had 20 barrels. So 20 batted balls with that ideal combination. Entering Friday, he already has 10. He has 53 batted balls in this year, and 10 of them have been barreled. He had 414 batted balls last year, and 20 of them were barreled. So This is exactly what the Rays have known was a possibility. The reason that they have stuck around with him and it's something that fans have really been looking for and it's really exciting to see and he is such a fun player when he is going huge.
1: You're right like his arms are like bursting out of his sleeves and I don't know how many people can say that for short sleeves. Like, I can get it whenever there's long sleeves and it looks... But he's like... Like, his short sleeves are even, like, not able... I don't know. It's it's insane. So, it does make sense that he's this, this enormous human being. And as long as that quality contact is there, like, that ball can be absolutely smoked. You don't need to be any type of stat person to put that together. So... None of that is surprising. It's more surprising that maybe it's not been as consistent. But now that it's sort of clicking, he's put on quite a show for Tampa. Um, and okay, putting on a show. Let's let's keep going with these uh, transitions. I, the Mariners, um, they've been cra- yes, they've been they've been fun, but they play into this this home run celebrations that we talked about a lot last week. That. I get a lot of texts from you about this one. You tried to keep from me. So hopefully that I didn't see it before we got onto this podcast so that I could witness it. (laughs) Um, And you could hear me live seeing it, but I did see it only because a coworker asked me, what does Sarah think of this? Because everyone's first thought is what does Sarah think? She has to be thinking this is the greatest thing ever because (laughs) that is your brand. And What do you know? You look on Sarah's Twitter and you see baseball is the best with this home run celebration. So please explain yet another uh, weird uh, prop usage of uh, how to reward someone for coming back in the dugout after a home run.
2: So it's well established at this point. I watch every game, so I've watched every Mariners game. And uh, since Julio debuted last year, the Mariners have become one of my go-to uh, West Coast sound games, you know, cause I watch every game, but I can only listen to one-on-one. So often listening to, uh, you know, Dave Sims and Goldie and, you know, whoever is in the booth for them. So I'm watching the game and, uh what was this, two days ago? I have no sense of time. Was this yesterday? Wait, we're going to figure that one. I understand. People are probably listening to us on Friday. We're recording on Thursday. And this happened on...
1: Every day the same for me.
2: The 19th, Wednesday. which Wednesday. was yesterday. Okay. So on Wednesday, by the way, Wednesday was a great day because Julio and Juan Soto, both lanyards.
1: yards. my Derby flashback.
2: I know, right? So Julio comes up second at bat, hits a home run like 110 off the bat. He's looked really good lately. Home run, you're excited. He's excited going around the bases, the whole thing. And then he gets the dugout step, and someone hands him a giant trident. And he, like, slams (laughs) it into the ground like he is staking his claim and then he goes into the dugout holding it, pauses and poses with it with like the stone face of like what you would expect if you're holding a trident and you're in a movie and it's an actual prop and it's the greatest thing ever. So I saw Ryan Divish, who covers the Mariners <laughs> tweet out after that moment that he had seen some of the players assembling it in the clubhouse before the game. (laughs) And that it looked complicated or something. And I know a couple people had gotten my mentions and were like, oh, the A's did this first. So I believe it was during the pandemic year, maybe, or even back to 19. Uh, Chris Bassett, who has now been, by the way, on two teams since the years, uh, had a thing where he found this trident, and he would give it usually to a pitcher after they had a really good game, and they would hold it during the post-game interview, and you know Dallas Braden would get a cook out of it during post-game and all of that. And I mean... The Mariners logo used to be an upside-down trident, so anyone who uh, doesn't see why they might be using that now—that's <laughs> on you. Uh, but yeah, I mean it's outstanding. I love all of these things. I cannot wait for the story when they go on the road next and we find out about who had that next. <laughs> In the plane, or how they explain. It. I mean, they all go on private planes, but you still have to explain why you're putting a giant trident into the belly of the plane <laughs> <laughs> when you give them your suitcase. So, yeah. Maybe,
1: maybe, maybe. That could be alarming for any type of TSA group. I think you have to explain yourself on that one. But, well, for just that, for that, just responding to that, I think. Shohei Otani is someone who brings something to baseball with his talent that we've never seen before, and that's why he's such a a phenom. We don't know. We don't understand him, and he catches a lot of attention because of that, and he just wows everyone because of his sheer talent. What I think Julio Rodriguez brings to this game, that very few people can... Yes, he's ridiculously talented. I'm not saying he's not talented, but the personality that he has... Is something that this sport needs and has craved um, for a long time. And like they, this MLB has started that Let the Kids Play initiative that's been around. We've heard that for a few years now. I don't think it truly will really sunk in until Julio Rodriguez got here. He is somebody who is the definition of let the kids play. He's this young guy in his low 20s and he's just having a blast every time he takes the field. And I think like, for him to steer into that, to have this weird pitchfork looking object in his hand and for him to slam it down into the ground, for him to pose with it in the dugout the big stars can always be guys who maybe shy away from those types of moments who are like, okay, I get enough attention. Like, I don't, I don't want to play it up. I don't want to be the loud guy in the room. He's just as like, he's not even doing it like he's attention seeking. This is just him being him. And it's so inviting. And I think it's a shame that He's in a time zone that a lot of people don't stay awake for on the East Coast to really understand who he is, but I think this type of schedule that baseball has now, for him to get to more ballparks, for more people to see this type of, this character that he is, it seems like he's just like this movie type of character that you put in to make the plot a lot better, to make people more entertained than what is just going on in everyday life i he truly it brings something to baseball that no one else has and so i think it's great every time we get to watch him in a moment like this where he just claims it and owns it and runs with it and makes everyone just sort of laugh along with it. this
2: him. is why i need like a deep dive on the trident and the yes. fact that, okay, so Divish says they're putting it together on Wednesday, so couldn't have debuted prior, but it, it feels like it had to debut with Willard, mm-hmm. right? So what if someone else homered? Would they have brought it up? Would they have waited? I mean, it just feels like this perfect moment that you finally got the thing, you decided Whoever's idea it was, you guys all pulled in, decided we're doing this. And then he homered. Did he know? I mean, it, there's just so much I, I need to know. And uh, it's so perfect to debut it with him. No disrespect course, to anyone else Sarah on the disclaimer.
1: team. <laughs>
2: But I do want to mention one other guy who has been homering for them a bit and has been very fun to watch, and that is Jerry Kelnick, who, of course, was the big name being in that Edwin Diaz and Robinson Canoe trade and, you know, had a very hyped debut back in 2021, struggled a bit, struggled in a handful of games last year, looked Really good in spring training this year. I believe I saw him go yard in the game I was at and just generally felt like everything coming out of Peoria was, hey, Kelnick homered again, he is off to a really, really good start. He is hitting the ball really hard. He is a 55% hard hit rate right now in his first two years in the majors, again, in and out. Uh, but his highest was like 39% in 2021. He seems so much more comfortable. And I actually saw a really cool moment in their game. I believe it was that same game on Wednesday. He struck out in a big spot. And as he and Julio headed out to the outfield, some of the reporters pointed out that they paused and seemed to be chatting in the outfield about that at bat, and I think it's a really cool moment because when Kelnick debuted, it was hey he's really exciting, he's going to pave the way, and then Julio's coming, and the way it ended up working out, Kelnick struggled, he goes back to the minor, the next year Julio comes up and wins rookie year. And you forget that the sort of minor league trajectory these guys have been on is not all that different. I believe they're like a year apart. Julio's 22. I believe Kalnick is 23. But because one guy now seems like a seasoned vet in Julio, you forget that there's a lot of sheer baseball experience there. And the fact that even though he's 22, he can provide advice and help to his teammates. So I love that. And it's just been so great to see a guy who has been part of so many narratives. I mean, for a guy who has played under 162 games in the majors, feels like he's a name that comes up and comes up for things that have nothing to do with his play and nothing to do with him, Edwin Diaz does and something and people mention him. Cano does something and people mention him. And I'm so glad for him that he is now paving his own name, so that when we talk about him, we're talking about Jared Kalnick, the player. All
1: right, let's let's go to our last break real quick. So when we come back, we can. Have a little bit more time because we have some things extra than just our favorite things in baseball to talk
0: about, so stay with us.
1: the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm Mandy, and that's always Sarah, as always. And we will have our favorite producer, Alana Schreiber, joining us for our favorite segment of the week. But before we even get into our favorite moments from baseball, we have to shout out Alana because she ran the Boston Marathon. And not only did she run it, like when you think about running the Boston Marathon, you think of people like actually you know, pacing themselves and going at a, well, m- my pace that I did the half marathon.
2: Which or... was very impressive, by the way.
1: Oh, get out of here. Anyway, <laughs> Um Sarah was, of course, watching, uh, following people running the marathon that day and texted me the link that we could... Follow along and watch Alana run. And I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. I wasn't expecting to open it up and see each mile broken down and to see that none of them went over eight minutes. All of them were insanely fast. And your last one somehow you just like that was your best mile, I think, as if this is broken down at like seven oh two for the last mile, which one, you're not that you're not human. No. I don't understand how that it works. And so what was it? The final overall was three hours, 19 minutes, and 30 seconds? Yep. So one, congrats, and two, you absolutely crushed it. What was that experience like?
0: It was so amazing. I have only run one other marathon, and it was like this adorable, like, 700-person marathon in Lowell, Massachusetts. And Boston is so many things, but it's it's not cute or small. <laughs> so it was like this behemoth of a race but it was so exciting to be with runners from all over the world with all of this amazing experience and I mean yeah I just had a blast it was so incredible to just be a part of something like that and the crowd energy was absolutely amazing it, it was a really unforgettable weekend and to get to have a lot of friends and family there was great and yeah I didn't think I'd be able to break 320 but it was very exciting
2: I mean The casualness with which you say that. So for background, we asked Lana after we were done recording last week, uh, you know, about the marathon a little bit, we knew she was doing it. And I remember asking, you know, how many marathons have you done before? And she said, just one. And I should have known that to qualify for Boston, having done one marathon, that one marathon must have been really, really good. But as Mandy mentioned, I pull up the site, and Alana was at the half marathon mark at like 139, which is not even a real number. And I said, Mandy, the link, and I'm just like, I don't understand what is happening. So congratulations, you're amazing. And so low key about it, which is even more amazing. Right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you. I think I will say the best part was I ran my first marathon because in Colorado, I was a sight guide for a blind runner named Dan. And he, I had only run halves, but he was like, a had run so many marathons and I was helping him train for Boston. And so he just eventually says, Alana, you're doing all my training runs with me. You should just train for a marathon. And he set me up with a training plan, with a physical therapist, with everything. And then he comes to Boston every year whether he's running or supporting other blind athletes and he was there this year and I hadn't seen him in like a year and a half but he was the first person I saw when I crossed the finish line and it was so amazing that like he helped me start on this journey and he was at the end of it and that just made it really special oh
1: my gosh you're now the coolest person yeah, I know like, I was, I, I, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard um, I have no idea how we transition out of this into favorite moments from baseball because it seems so <laughs> odd, but we're going to do it anyway. So Alana, after talking about how incredible of an athlete you are, how about you say one of your favorite things that you saw in baseball over the last week?
0: <laughs> well, actually, my favorite moment in baseball is totally related to the Boston Marathon. So this transition works. Um, So I I got to Boston last Friday and got to go to my first game of the season, Red Sox-Angels. And it was on April 15th, which is not only Jackie Robinson Day, but the anniversary of the Boston bombing. And so the Red Sox invited the families of the victims, as well as survivors, to take the field before the game started. And then the next day, they had the Band of Bearded Brothers come back, the 2013 championship team. They returned to the field. The Red Sox were such a part of the recovery and resiliency after the Boston bombing. Everyone remembers Big Poppy's very famous speech, and that was true 10 years ago when it happened, and it's still true today. They were still such a big part of bringing the community together. Big Poppy also served as the Grand Marshal of the marathon this year, which was very exciting. Aww. So it was really meaningful that... The Red Sox have and will always be really a part of bringing the city back together after this tragedy. And it was it was really special to see. And it was also great to go to my first game of the season where the Red Sox had a grand slam hit against them in the first inning and still won 9-7. So pretty impressive.
1: Okay, well, you're right. That transitioned well out of what we were talking about. So that's (laughs) awesome. I can't I can't even imagine having that experience I definitely can't imagine it because you could not pay me enough money in the world to run 26 plus miles. <laughs> I am in running retirement forever and always. So all the power to you for doing that. That was awesome. And I'm so glad you had that. Experience.
0: Thank you guys so much. Slangs.
2: All right. What do you got? Mine is not as heartwarming, but still heartwarming. So uh, <laughs> second week in a row, I'm going with a Sunday Night Baseball Mike dumb moment. Uh, really, really cool. This past Sunday, the Astros and the Rangers, and the player mic'd up was the starting catcher, Martín Maldonado. And uh, the only other time we had heard a catcher mic'd up since this has become a thing was uh, Jose Trevino last summer, but that was in the All-Star game. So doing this in a real live competitive game was really, really cool. And in uh, baseball tonight, Prior to Sunday Baseball, they did an interview with Maldonado and then the Sunday Baseball booth. And uh, Carl and asked Martine Maldonado, Why did you want to do this? And he pointed out that Maldonado had been, it wasn't necessarily just a random idea, that Maldonado had been part of the decision making to get a chance to do this. And he said the sweetest thing in the world. He said that he wanted to be an example for young catchers, high school guys, guys in college, just other catchers, and they wanted to see what a big league catcher does during a game, how he prepares, and just have that insight. And he said it like it was the most normal and everyday thing in the world. And while the sentiment certainly should be, we've never seen someone go out of their way to do this while doing their job in such a demanding position. So I love that he did it, even before I knew why. When I found out he would be doing it, I was like, I'm all in. And then to hear him say that he wanted it to be learning experience. I mean, I thought that was incredible.
1: Okay, I think I'm gonna go back sort of down the Alana route and circle back to the Boston Marathon. Um, Because if you know me one, you know that I am child obsessed and so um, and baseball obsessed. So when you marry the two, it's great. Uh, my biggest thing is I love players' kids. I love when players' kids get involved. I love all of those things. So I have been a fan of Brock Holt for a very long time because of his son Griffin. And Griffin is has been adorable from day one. Um, but it's it was cool to see Brock Holt, who would have been known in that area very well because of his stint in Boston. I mean, he was there for seven years, so... Um, and I know he's been out of the league now for two years or so. Hasn't really, I don't know if he actually officially went into retirement, if he ever announced that he was in that, but he hasn't been uh, involved in, in, at least in the big leagues in two years. And so in his spare time, he decided to run the Boston marathon this year. And so it was fun to watch him on um, Instagram. Like he had been posting about it. He and his wife did it together and, Um, when Sarah sent me that link to follow along with Alana I was like I wonder if I search Brock Holt's name if I can see what he's doing (laughs) so of course I did and what was funny to me is what stood out was one of his miles I don't even know what point it was but one of the paces towards the end went to a 20 minute pace and he had been in that like 11 to 12 minute range I'm thinking did something happen like did he get hurt like did he, like, stop? But then the pace came back to normal, so I'm like, I wonder what happened. He then posted at the end of the day how amazing it was. He posted this video of himself crossing the finish line. Someone, must have been a family friend, family or friend, was recording him, recording himself, doing a selfie video as he was crossing the finish line. Um, and he posted all these things about how incredible it was. And in his caption, he said... If anyone was following me and noticed that my pace went to 20 minute miles, here's why. And he posted that he found his family and Griffin's standing there with this huge sign. He now has a second son, uh, which I should know the name of, but I don't because <laughs> when he was more in his prime in the big leagues, he was it was just Griffin at that point. But his two sons are there. He was holding them. He stopped and got photos with them and just Aww. got to have that moment with his family. And of course, in that moment, I became a puddle. And I thought that was great. He found a sign along the way. I don't know if it was a sign from family, if it was a sign from a random Red Sox fan who knew he was there. Um, but there was a sign about, like, good luck, Brock Holt, that was like, stapled to a telephone pole at one point and he just like was hugging the pole and he took a picture of him with that (laughs) Um, it was just really cool because obviously as Alana talked about the Red Sox are so important in that community Um, He had such a long stint there. I know he wasn't the biggest name that's ever gone through Boston, um, but it's cool that community that was built there and fans knew he was going back through to do that marathon. His family was there to have his little kid having that sign melted me. It was the cutest thing. Um, So I thought that was really neat. And even though he's not in baseball anymore, he is still part of that community. Um, ran it and then the best part of it was what I related to most was how he posted in his caption it was an incredible experience and he will never do it again so (laughs) relate hard to that I thought that was great
2: I assume Alana does not feel the same way
0: oh yeah would you do again yeah so I do think I'll be running another marathon but for the next one, I'd really like to sight guide actually. I've sight guided in practice and training, but never actually during a race. And I think that would be a really fun thing to do.
1: Oh, you're so cool!
2: Amazing.
1: You're so cool. We'll never be as cool as you are. So we're going to get out of here now because you're just, you're bigger than anything that we could ever do. So that'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing. on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying our show or you have any suggestions for us at all, please leave us a rating and a review. Thank you as always for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast and we'll see you next week.